0: The pharma industry has a productivity problem. Researchers recently found that the cost of developing a new drug roughly doubled every nine years. They dubbed this E-Room's Law, the opposite of Moore's Law, made famous in computing. In drug discovery, many think artificial intelligence, a darling of the tech industry, could fundamentally change the way in which we approach finding treatments for diseases and even make complex disorders more tractable. But is this all just hype? What have been the real impacts of this exciting new technology in the here and now? And how have pharma been able to integrate it into their pre-existing drug discovery structures? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, is AI a cure-all for the pharmaceutical industry? The process of discovering new drugs and treatments for diseases is a truly interdisciplinary endeavor. It's not just biology that researchers need to be thinking about, but chemistry, pharmacology, and manufacturing too. And when it comes to finding drugs for complex diseases, the plot thickens further. It's a process rooted deep in the complexity of disease biology to find the appropriate targets. And the search for potential drug candidates requires us to navigate the astronomical diversity of chemical and molecular space. And it's been estimated that over 10 to the power 60 drug-like small molecules could exist. For reference, the stars that we can see in the observable universe is only 10 to the power 20. Through Pharma R&D, we seek optimal lead candidates that exhibit a large range of essential properties from an efficacy to act upon its target to being safe to use in humans. It's a process of elimination, but this entire process is highly time consuming and not all lead candidates make it into the clinic, meaning costly clinical trials are often performed on candidates doomed to failure. The ratio of leads in to therapies out is about 10 to one. There is considerable hope being pinned on AI as a tool to make the drug discovery process more streamlined and better able to eliminate flawed lead candidates before we run clinical trials. AI startups disrupting a space traditionally dominated by pharma companies are now a key part of the industry landscape. But will AI be able to streamline the drug discovery process? Will this new technology be able to scour through the data? And will we be able to trust the analysis it produces and the predictions it makes regarding drug safety? Will it be the silver bullet that shifts how we think about the life sciences completely? And maybe Will it force us to rethink the relationship between data and the decisions we make? This is what I wanted to find out. So I got in touch with a few people who are experts in drug discovery to help me on my way. First up, I invited TTP's very own Sarah Morrow to our studio for a chat to open the conversation up. Sarah is a life sciences consultant at TTP joining in 2020 after getting her Ph.D. specialising in organic chemistry from the University of Oxford. Sarah brings a chemist's perspective on the challenges encountered within drug discovery, as well as focusing on the technology, both hardware and software, that could enable and accelerate the field. We started off our conversation at the very beginning. What is the traditional process of drug discovery? And why does this cause a challenge for the pharma industry? Hi Sarah it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about how drugs are discovered what the drug discovery process is really.
1: Yeah okay so it's it's a big question and it's a it's a long development and it can take up to 20 years or more to develop a drug and there are some wildly varying estimates on how costly it is as well so Anything from about one billion dollars to eleven billion dollars has been touted as a as a figure for developing a drug. And if we go back to the beginning, I guess we start off with the understanding of the disease itself, the disease biology. Um, we need to work out what exactly are the what exactly underlies the disease, what the biological mechanism is, and. We can then use that to work out what we need to target to induce a a favourable therapeutic effect. And so once we've got that understanding, we then start to design our molecules or whatever therapy we're going to use to target that disease. That itself is a long process, It's um, it's not a kind of, there's no big toolbox of compounds where you can pick and choose with great certainty which ones are going to target your biology. It's a it's a bit of a test uh, trial and error process in in some ways. So it
0: really is like a process of discovery, and yeah, that's why they call it.
1: Yeah, Um, and this is where you get lots of um, high throughput screening approaches. For example, where you're sort of you're throwing numbers at the problem. Um, You're trying to get as many compounds through your screen as possible to identify one or two hits out of a potential library of thousands and thousands of molecules. But then once you've got that molecule, once you've got your leads, you can start to develop them. And eventually they'll go into animal testing mm-hmm. and finally into clinical trials. And it's those clinical trial steps which are really the, the biggest and most expensive parts of the process. Um, so once you've taken your molecule all the way up to that point and committed to taking it into that clinical trial... You' really spend you've spent a lot of money on it already. It's a, it's a cost which you can't recover again, mm-hmm. um, but many of those that go into clinical trials are actually doomed to failure in the end. Um, and' it's, it's decreasing the failure rate at that point, which some people think is going to be the, the critical the critical step to reducing the cost of drug, di- drug discovery overall.
0: Now I can see that it's kind of a very expensive process and there's, there's sort of inefficiencies in each stage. What do you think the area is where we could actually make a, a real big improvement in, in the cost of the drug discovery?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I guess ultimately it's, it's at the point, the biggest gains can be made at the most expensive parts. So a clinical trial really would be the, the critical point. Um, that's where an individual molecule takes the hundreds of millions of pounds to conduct your trial. Whereas at earlier stages, um, the the cost is simply for each step much reduced. So the biggest gains can be made at the clinical trial stage. And of course, it's decisions made through all of those earlier stages that allow you to filter things out quickly to avoid them getting to the clinical trial stage in the first place.
0: Yes, I suppose you want to avoid the situation where you're doing a clinical trial on a on a molecule that you could conceivably have taken out of the race much earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's the yeah, the crucial thing to understand and so having having ways to predict that clinical performance, having ways to that correlate a a result in a lab in a biological assay where it's a it's a throwaway test, you can do it very cheaply, very quickly but having ways to correlate that result with what result you might get in a clinical trial is, is the key.
0: Drug discovery has traditionally been quite difficult because of the complexities of predicting how a given drug will interact with the human body. When clinical trials are so expensive and the rate of drugs failing at late stage is so high, it's clear that there's a productivity problem from a clinical perspective. But does everyone agree on how to address this? What about people working on the industry side, taking a more process-oriented view of things? To learn some more from someone working with Pharma, I called up Aaron Morris, the CEO and co-founder of Postera. Postera are a company building an end-to-end medicinal chemistry platform to advance drug discovery, using machine learning and AI to do so. After seeing the limitations of traditional drug discovery on biotech companies and Pharma, Aaron wanted to set up a company to come in at this early stage and work alongside them to improve the process. This is where Postero were born. I got in touch with Aaron from his base in Boston to find out some more about his company and to ask about how they're going about solving farmers' productivity problem. What what does that really mean to you, that, that productivity problem? Is that something you're kind of familiar with?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of different ways to measure this productivity problem. One is to look at the actual investment it takes to bring a drug to market. The most disappointing statistic, I think, for most people is the failure rate of drugs when they actually make it into human testing. So it's somewhere between kind of 90, 95% of drugs that make it into human testing don't make it out the other side and they fail. That's pretty high, That's, that's uh, yeah. So most people worry about, well, it takes a long time and it's quite expensive. I understand and absolutely, I wanna bring those metrics down. But frankly, right now, if you can just increase the success rate from five or ten percent to twenty percent for the same cost that is a life-changing literally life-changing for patients around the world so from posterior perspective i guess we try and primarily concern ourselves with how can we create better molecules faster molecules cheaper molecules in that kind of order um the final kind of other dimension that you can kind of analyze this this problem from um, is 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 actually in the kind of um, pre-clinical stage as well as just the clinical stage and and really this is kind of where post operates so we operate in that process that gets you to the drug candidate that's going to go into into human into human testing and so within that stage, cost becomes even less of an important factor because it's going to get dominated by the cost in the clinical trials. So we care much more about high-quality drug compounds or candidates. And then secondly, how fast can we do
0: that process? Well, what I was um, wondering is, obviously the pharma industry has been around for a, for a long time. Why haven't they been able to solve the productivity problem themselves? Why do they have to look outside So there has definitely
2: been no kind of dearth of ideas and technologies that have been tried. There has certainly been an AI winter, at least as adopted within the pharma industry that kind of particularly around like 2014, 2015. And so from kind of farmer's perspective, you have to ask yourselves, okay. what is the best way to try and get this technology in-house? And the problem with that is when you bring a new technology in-house, it is not a blank slate. You are competing against existing technologies. So I think firstly, you don't have the blank slate. You're competing against internal technologies And what that means is a huge activation energy to try and get your internal users to switch over to that new mindset. Critically also for something like AI, you have the implicit danger of it being viewed as a threat to human-based approaches. Often happens is the established chemist at large pharma can look at AI. And rather than say, you know what, how can this at least augment or help my workflow? It's this thing could take my job and I'm going to critique it and try and break it and try and find out where it fundamentally doesn't work. And then write
0: a tweet about it or something. It's clear that approaches to improving the quality of drug candidates entering the pipeline could have a much greater impact than just cost cutting or efficiency savings alone at least in the early stages of drug discovery. Because the cost and time associated with pursuing compounds which eventually fail are the real culprits here. When a failure occurs at the clinical trial stage, the sunk cost and time can be significant. And if we want to reduce that failure rate at the clinical trial stage, we need better tools to make predictions on what will be a success in the clinic. If AI's predictive power can reduce the failure rate of drug candidates in clinical trials overall, then it will undoubtedly have a positive impact on drug discovery. So, can AI fit the brief? I wanted to speak to someone who had been working in this specific space on the kinds of technologies that will enable this to happen. So I got in touch with Andreas Bender, a professor of life sciences informatics, interested in developing new life science data analysis methods for their application in drug discovery. Having spent over a decade at Cambridge University, working in molecular informatics. Andreas is now the CSO at Terra Lumina, a company building the world's largest data set of natural compounds, using AI that unlocks the connection between nature's small molecules and the human body. Traditionally, for a library this large, Drug Discovery would be looking towards high-throughput tools for compound screening. I asked Andreas about his perspective on this approach and the work that he's been doing at Terralumina. So it looks like you got um new position you're CSO at Terra Lumina. What are you what are you doing there?
3: Yeah, so what we're doing there is uh, to explore the potential of natural products for drug discovery if you go back in drug discovery until the 60s or 70s uh, drug discovery was actually done phenotypically uh, so you had small series of compounds uh, which you tested in animals straight away and only since the 80s you had high throughput screening, so you had a million compounds or so a large screening library that you test in essays so the idea was you have more shots at a goal yeah? uh, but the problem with that was yeah. you actually had compounds in the end uh, that didn't survive the clinic so that didn't show efficacy so it might not have been the right essays or the right chemistry so we tried to go uh, back to the well, power of nature, if you wish, wish uh, the chemistry of nature, yeah, and to have better starting points for drug discovery—that is the idea.
0: I mean, what, what's your opinion of the of the high throughput, the high throughput movement? Are we are we going to enter an era where it's it's less important?
3: Yeah, I think there's a real difference between different types of disease biology, different disease areas. Um, so, in some areas where you have one clear target that's related to efficacy, so where you can say, "I inhibit that enzyme." angiotensin converting enzyme, let's say, right, Uh, you reduce blood pressure, right, or you inhibit a particular protease, let's say, of COVID, right, Uh, you inhibit entry into the cell, yeah, in those cases, I think a throughput screening does make sense, we have complex diseases, um, CNS diseases, depression, let's say, uh, you will not be able to set up an assay, right, in a microtiter plate, uh, where you test compounds, yeah, because that is simply more complex biology, so it's really horses for causes, I think, is the saying, yeah, so it depends, right, on the disease biology.
0: What is the consequence of trying to use high-throughput screening against a more complex disease?
3: Yeah, I think uh, one consequence is, I mean, the input, right? Uh, We need to screen one million compounds. Um, It roughly costs, let's say, $1 per data point. So, I mean, it costs $1 million to generate the data. But the actual cost is uh, that the compounds don't survive in the clinic. Um, So you have then more complex disease models afterwards. So you have a compound active on the target where you hope activity on the target translates into efficacy in the clinic. Uh, But that's not always the case, right? If you have a complex disease you have a compound active in an assay but that compound is not active anymore in vivo and that's the actual price right high failure rates effectively
0: so how do we need to reimagine drug discovery to allow for such complexity are we are we going to be able to find an assay or do we need to find other ways of approaching the problem?
3: I think we need to have more disease understanding uh, effectively. So to be able to identify uh, what is an early assay that is predictive for the disease situation in vivo, related to both uh, safety and efficacy actually. Um, and That implies, I think in all cases, um, better understanding um, or it could also be, in the slightly simpler case, it could be a biological assay where we establish empirically that, let's say, inhibition of a signaling cascade translates into efficacy in the clinic. That could also be done empirically. But I think in practice, it's usually disease understanding that we need in order to pick the right targets, the right readouts in this early-stage assay in the first place. I think it's effectively understanding that is often missing in disease biology.
0: As Andreas just explained, a better understanding of disease biology can be harnessed in the next stage of drug discovery which involves a screening of large compound libraries. In the ideal case, we would develop a biological assay for the testing of these compounds, which would be more reflective of the disease state. And if we could do this, then the compounds we identify as being active in the lab-based experiments would be far more likely to translate towards success in the clinic. I went back to Sarah to hear some more about this. Is the increased understanding of disease biology better as a starting point for drug discovery? What do you think pharma companies could do to get a better understanding of the underlying disease biology?
1: So at at the moment, I guess the the process is quite a rigid one. A pharmaceutical company might have a relatively rigid way of understanding their disease um, based on actually what's quite limited information. They want to focus quite rapidly on a particular drug target and use that as the basis for their screening without necessarily um, understanding that that really correlates with the, you know, the complexities of the disease that they're they're looking at. Maybe it doesn't correlate, maybe it doesn't hold true across all different presentations of that disease type. It's, you know, they're, they're not finding out false information, but they're not maybe finding out the most lucrative information that they want using that, using that discovery um, mechanism.
0: And what would it take to have tests that would give you that sort of insight?
1: We have access to much richer data sets now. So if we think about the, the advent of um, sequencing, for mm-hmm. example, we have a huge raft of information on the genomics of all these various disease types, um, the phenotypes of those diseases. We can create cell models of different disease types. We can use even patient cells and patient material to analyze on you know, individual to individual how these diseases present. And we effectively have a, a much a much richer picture of the disease and how it presents across the population. And I think that will... You, you're basically going from a, a complex more complex understanding of your disease in the first place that allows you to hone in on, you know, what exactly is the mechanism that causes this what we see in the patient population. And by doing that you'll you're much more likely to to pick the right target in the first place.
0: So you're sort of moving away from that kind of one test, one answer, and moving towards a kind of a several tests leading towards a kind of more nuanced answer.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um yeah.
0: And is that what the is that what AI brings to the table then is, is be able to kind of interpret that mass of information?
1: Yeah, I get, uh, in, yeah, my interpretation is when you when you start to use rich data sets with potentially presenting over hundreds, thousands of different, um, slightly different presentations of this this disease, it's inevitably much more difficult to understand the various links between those things. And to tease out what the real disease biology is, but AI has the power to to tease out those relationships, to understand what the what the core relationships are, to to see the unexpected links between a disease, uh, you know, a, a biological mechanism and a disease presentation. Um, something that we wouldn't necessarily be able to get from a single a single experiment, a single assay. And that's where AI can come in.
0: And are there, are there any companies uh, focusing on that specific part of the, the drug discovery cycle?
1: Definitely. So um, companies like um, InSitro, for example, they recognised that there was a huge, huge wealth of biological data that they could use to understand a disease target better, where they really sold themselves, I guess, is the fact that they they really need to generate um, their own biological data, because whatever is in the literature was so context-dependent, um, they couldn't necessarily, they couldn't validate it, it wasn't wasn't reproducible. Perhaps they weren't even testing exactly the right thing, or enough things. By having their own biology, by doing their own biochemical testing, they can have greater trust in their data and correlate it better with all the other pieces of information they get, such as the, the genotype of whatever cell they're producing.
0: The work that Insitra are doing to understand disease targets through AI and biological data is really fascinating. But they are by no means the only people working in this space, because now, AI is being used by others in a more exploratory fashion to design assays targeting more predictive outcomes, or even to find new classes of molecule altogether. This is the exact work that Andreas has been doing throughout his career, particularly in the realm of generative chemistry. So I went back to him to find out his thoughts on it. So how how, how does the work that you've been doing in Cambridge apply to, to this? What sort of AI? How have you deployed it? Uh, what have you found?
3: Yeah, one area was generative chemistry, and I find that very interesting that the computer can up can come up uh, with new molecules uh, and suggest new uh, drugs. And you combine combine that, for example, with docking, so structure-based drug design, where the computer always uh, also estimates whether a ligand is likely to fit into a protein that it's meant to inhibit, for example. Okay, that is one one area. Another one is actually understanding the productivity of endpoints, so which genes, for example, that are up or down regulated, and um, tell us uh, about a certain toxicity in vivo. So, there are databases that give you gene expression data uh, of in vivo uh, organ slices, for example, and then you can identify uh, the up or down regulation of which gene uh, in a simple assay, because hopefully that translates to a cellular assay as well, um, the up and down regulation of which gene can tell us about in vivo effects. So, that translational aspect is actually very important to me.
0: What types of A.I. models are you using a, a plan to use at Terra Lumina?
3: Yeah, so Terra Lumina, so that's a company uh, that we're just starting um, here in Berlin, um, that is using AI for drug discovery from natural products. Um, So natural products, there's lots of historical information uh, about the use available, for example. And recently, there were lots of developments in analytical chemistry, so it's easier to identify constituent compounds. Uh, Synthetic biology developed, so it's easier to make those compounds as well. These are huge changes over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. So what we believe is it's really time to look into natural products again. Um, what is the point here? Uh, natural products uh, are intrinsically more bioactive than synthetic molecules, and because if a plant makes a natural product, it doesn't make it for fun. It costs energy uh, to produce that compound, right? Uh, so probably it's used to defend itself against invaders, for example. Um, and so this is why natural products are uh, more likely t- to show efficacy uh, in the clinic. That is our strong belief. And so what do we do here is we use knowledge graphs, so uh, computer models that integrate information about uh, chemical structure targets pathways and indications and in this knowledge graph what we can do is we can map one into the other so we can say for this type of chemistry what are the likely targets pathways and diseases this molecule is active in. And if we turn that around, we can say, for a given indication, give me the right chemistry that is likely to be bioactive, okay? And then the computer can tell us uh, what is the chemistry that we should test in experiments against a particular disease or disease area, Uh, let's say immunomodulation or inflammation and so on, um, and that can be prioritized. Uh, So we can go back to uh, the natural product chemistry, very bioactive chemistry, and, and test that experimentally in assays
0: so more generally it can mo- models like that can help you actually plan your experimental campaign
3: yeah that's absolutely right it's yeah. it's about prioritization so the computer is uh, in many cases not right but it can help you prioritize and with the information that we have across chemistry across biology what we can do is increase our chances of success
0: and there's actually moves to use ai and machine learning to actually help in the design of clinical trials too right
3: yeah, that is right. And one one simple example is, um, for example, doing uh, virtual uh, control groups. Uh, that is one example. So you actually see if you do clinical trial, uh, you, you're going to select people who are treated with a drug. And usually you would have a, a control group as well that has a similar or ideally identical composition with respect to age and all the other variables that you would like to control for. And the idea here is that you have a virtual control group so that you're able to, uh, to select those people from historical data. Um, and there are some advances, uh, advances in this area, uh, which means effectively that you can, uh, you can cut the uh, size of your trial in about half or so that is right now. Yeah.
0: Andreas's approach demonstrates that a process of discovery based on AI doesn't just target isolated parts of the drug discovery pathway. Instead of the stepwise approach offered by traditional drug discovery processes, AI, offers us a much more holistic way of looking at a disease. It develops the understanding of the chemistry and biology together, which increases the likelihood of success. Not every company is looking to address the entirety of the drug development pathway. Aaron's work at Postera adopts a different approach, targeting a specific part of the drug development pathway to work in collaboration with Pharma. In fact, there's recently been a significant trend in collaborations and acquisitions of small companies with expertise in this space. I wanted to find out from Aaron about what realms they are utilising AI in and how effective it's been there. It sounds like quite a challenge to sell the benefits of it then to to a, a pharma customer. How have you, How have you sold the benefits and kind of what are the benefits? If you
2: try and pitch an antagonistic approach from day one, it's going to be hard to get adoption or for people to trust. And so I guess what we try and do at, at Posterior, and this is independent of whether you're pitching, this is not just for the sake of a sales pitch, but it's saying, okay, what are the areas that AI and broader computational approaches are inherently more likely to be able to resolve? And then what is it that humans are particularly good at that we, are, we think it is unlikely that AI will be able to compete with and do as well? And so the, the pitch to, uh, let's pick an example, like Pfizer, for example, with, with our collaboration with them, The the question is, what is it that AI is fundamentally better at being able to do? And then let's target those specific parts of drug discovery and let's have humans involved. But let's have humans involved that want to take their kind of implicit knowledge embedded as, I guess, scar tissue over many years and take those learnings and incorporate it back into an algorithmic
0: approach. Yeah, somebody, so people people who've sort of built up an intuition over, over many years of experience and uh, kind of trial and error um, approach almost.
2: Yeah, there's incredibly valuable latent knowledge within that kind of 20-year farmer veteran. And that is not the problem. There's incredible wealth of knowledge there. The problem is it's not always
0: applied objectively and systematically. So it's so almost like you kind of come into a room uh, and the AI has suggested a meeting agenda or suggested some discussion topics or said, actually, why don't you guys look at this suite of compounds today?
2: So uh, one of the things, yeah, that PostDua has done is basically aggregate what what we call uh, moves in chemical space that humans have made, and I use that word moves as a implicit trigger when you think about AlphaGo, and you think about like chess, um, and you think about the way that ultimately AI was originally trained on on moves that humans made, and eventually it learned to play itself, etc. And so what we've tried to do is say, OK, look, there's a huge body and corpus of information. Let's at least start presenting ideas to chemists that they themselves recognize because they themselves did those moves. And when I say a move, what I mean is a change to a chemical compound that they expect to result in a certain improvement in desirable properties, for example.
0: So is AI integral to that mission or is there, are there other things that need to change in the industry as well? AI is certainly integral in that mission.
2: It is it is Posterior's weapon of choice by far because that's our expertise. But we want to be very careful about not just having this big hammer called machine learning and looking for a nail all the time, but being very honest with ourselves as to when is machine learning the right tool for a particular problem and when machine learning is implemented and it doesn't move the needle as much as we hoped, is there other factors
0: that are being missed. Posterior's ambitions are really impressive. Their understanding that machine learning and AI is not a catch-all, a panacea to plug in at any level of the drug discovery process to solve any issue. It's part of a wider ecosystem which requires many more inputs and considerations. So what is an effective and holistic AI model? What does it look like? And where should it be implemented? I went back to Sarah to find out.
1: The areas where AI is likely to be most successful is where the input data can be best relied on. And it's, it's quite revealing, I guess, that the only AI-designed drug that has made it into the press that has, has a success was the drug designed by ExScientia. So it entered a phase one clinical trial in um, January 2020. Um, it was a drug developed to target, I think, OCD. Right. I guess the key, though, is the fact that in that case, the target was known, the biological target was known, and they were using AI to develop a compound to develop to target that particular disease to... Um, to have efficacy against that particular drug target. And it may be that the, the input data required to, to optimise that compound, and that being you know chemical data in particular, that may be an easier problem than using AI to understand the disease biology in the first place.
0: So of all the niches we've talked about so far... Where where do you think it's having the most impact at the moment?
1: I think probably in the spaces where, again, the input data is most reliable. Uh-huh. So where the measurements you make of a particular compound don't vary between labs. Um, they are um, not dependent on the context that you measure them in. Maybe where there's simply more published data in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that might be the the physical properties of a chemical compound.
0: So we've got this really powerful tool, but not many data sources are able to be harnessed effectively by it.
1: Yeah, I think so. And that lack of data is exactly why companies like in exist. They recognised that they had lots of literature data, lots of genetic data, but it couldn't be well correlated with the actual biological data that had been generated. They needed to generate their own platform to do those experiments and for it to be machine-readable.
0: So a lot of the advances in the future you think are going to be underpinned by technological advances, as in hardware rather than software.
1: Yeah, I think that it could well be that way. And whilst the volume of data will be important in AI, I think it's the quality of the data that's going to be more important. So if we focus on developing platforms... That are less high throughput, but give better clinical success. Then, that's a better way forward.
0: Are there are there any other kind of niches where you think kind of AI has got a really good impact, good potential for impact?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, maybe uniquely as a tool within drug discovery and development, AI can, could actually hit all parts of the drug discovery cycle. So. We can think about getting a better understanding of the disease biology. We can design better chemical probes that target that disease more effectively. We can build models to predict toxicity and safety. And then beyond the kind of exploratory phase, we can use AI as well in the clinical research setting. So we can understand how to stratify patients for clinical trials. We can aggregate real world data. So the way that humans talk about disease is obviously it's not formulaic. it's not it's a messy data set, but um tools like natural language processing can actually take that and make it into something quantifiable and useful. You can also think about longer term reporting of um of data, for example. so, um, gathering data from electronic health records, even moving towards things like the kind of implantable devices that report on a patient's um, progress, for example. All of that data is really relevant for future um, drug development. It
0: seems like you've kind of got two, two things going on here. You've got one where you've got really high automation of some very simple experiments. That's churning out lots and lots of data, but it's, it's, not, it's not relating, it's not got a great predictive power. And then you've got these more complex experiments, which are much more dependent on what the, um, what the human operator does. And we sort of need to merge those two together in a way.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a nice way of describing it. It's not just about churning out data. First and for- foremost, we need to think about what exactly we're measuring.
0: The number of drugs that have been created using AI is still startlingly small. So much so that compounds identified using these methods still make the headlines whenever they enter clinical trials. Clearly, we're not quite at the stage of machine learning dominating the drug discovery space just yet. And as we've identified, there's a need for genuine hardware developments too, to generate data for breakthroughs needed in fundamental disease understanding. One thing the technology certainly does have however is hype in medical circles and beyond I went back to Andreas to ask him whether this had been a help or a hindrance AI has been a long
3: uh, it's been around for a long time is there is there a, a, a new hype I would think so I would think so and, and that hype is probably driven by um, to an extent uh, by the new developments in image recognition and speech recognition where the assumption is we can transfer much of that uh, to the drug discovery area so right now i mean at the beginning of a hype right um, it's quite a methods driven hype it's quite machine learning driven and i think the translation of those methods to the drug discovery area that is really still lagging behind um, quite likely also driven by cheap money right so there was lost lots of investments in venture capital and so on in recent years in my expectation quite possibly that Will change in the coming years. We see that right now with interest rates increasing already, right? Uh, that might really change, and it might also change the uh, the whole landscape of using AI and drug discovery. At some stage, companies need to show uh, we have compounds that go into the clinic that show efficacy. So at least after phase two. Uh, right now, there are no compounds that were designed by AI uh, that passed phase two. Right? I mean, we have compounds in phase one, but there's nothing in, uh, that comes out of phase two. So showed efficacy in the clinic. We need to show efficacy in the clinic. I think for AI and drug discovery to really uh, be sustainable in the long term.
0: Yeah, and, and then you think about, is this actually a st- sustainable level of investment to put into a technology which which uh, hasn't shown proof uh, yet? Yeah,
3: that, that is right. On the other hand, um, we need to analyze our data. So basically, I'm not um, negative about um, AI and drug discovery. We need to analyze our data, right? Uh, that is certainly the case. So we have more and more chemical data, bioactivity data, and we have generative models, for example, right? The important thing now is, I think, to find the right application areas for using the right question, choosing the right question, um, and then having the right data to answer that question. We need to understand better where the data and methods work and have a positive impact and where they don't.
0: So do you think that there's a risk of it being misdeployed?
3: Uh, what certainly is the case right now that there's no real comparison of AI methods to let's say more conventional um, drug design methods and that's a problem for the um, assessment a true assessment of their uh, value right now there are more compounds approved so some people claim that is the impact of AI Uh, however quite often they are for smaller patient populations very different types of drugs that get approved Um, also companies always focus on different disease areas and so on it's very difficult to compare those numbers over the years there's always different chemistry coming out basically and, and different diseases that get uh, addressed. It's very difficult to quantify the impact of AI in drug discovery and practice.
0: With a technology with as much promise and hype as AI has, you'd always expect it to be used in places where maybe it's not best suited. But actually if you look at the impact in the places where it is needed, it really has been incredible. The pandemic is one such example, and it's a place where Postera were able to be involved in a really exciting and powerful way. I asked Aaron to tell me a bit more about Postera's work in the fight against COVID and their open source Moonshot project. There was, um, there was a project which you guys were a part of called uh, the COVID Moonshot. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what that was about? Yes.
2: So Postura launched COVID Moonshot in partnership with a series of other organizations back in March 2020, when we saw on Twitter a fragment screen that was run uh, against the main protease. So basically, in simple language, this is a kind of mini drug screen thrown at a important part of the COVID-19 virus machinery. And we realized that our a our ml technology actually was really suited to be able to take this very early preliminary data and begin to actually progress it into really promising uh, drugs eventually and what we decided to do from day 1 was to keep the entire thing open science so we would publish all the data we would publish all the compound structures This is very, very, very rare within the kind of pharma industry to ever do this. So rather than patenting anything and trying to own the IP and develop the drug ourselves, we said, can we develop it in an open source manner? And like, we launched this little website where we basically said, hey, if you have any ideas for how to turn these original uh, fragments into actual drug candidates, antivirals, um, please just submit an idea to our website. We create this website over a weekend. We're like Our co-founders, Matt, built this thing without much sleep. And we were three months old as a company with just the three co-founders. And we were like, well, I don't know, maybe 50, 50 submissions will come in or something. Uh, we're basically close to about 20,000 now. And we've had over 450 scientists from around the world uh, contribute to this project. And the most amazing thing is that COVID Moonshot is not just... Stayed on Twitter or on websites, but we've actually made c- close now to I think about 2000 compounds in the real world, manufactured them in labs and tested them. We just got an 11 million grant to take these ideas and actually put them hopefully into human trials next year. And this will be the first drug in history that has been crowdsourced,
0: which is really amazing. You did talk briefly about the AI hype. Do you you think we're at um, peak AI? I I think, yes,
2: the peak is now past within the air hub. You can't just throw AI on your pitch deck and expect investors or pharma to get interested anymore.
0: Aaron's right. From a hype perspective, AI has become two letters synonymous with growth and technological innovation. But it can't forever be about potential it should also be about realistic application. And we found that that application is so often built off the idea of collaboration. AI necessitates it. Smaller companies with expertise in the niches of AI are able to work alongside pharma to solve complex and nuanced tasks. It could even mean the democratization of drug discovery. If we're asking scientists to make such radical changes, we should expect that this new technology should be put through its paces. But AI has the potential to simultaneously amalgamate the perspective of chemists, biologists, toxicologists, and physicians all at once. So it looks likely that AI will have a role to play in addressing farmers' productivity problem. That's all for today. Thanks to all of our guests, Sarah, Aaron, and Andreas, and to you for listening. We'll be back next week when we'll be taking a deeper look into preclinical testing and whether new in vitro models can make animal testing a thing of the past. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, Biotechnology and Bioinstrumentation Consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Ball. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP, and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.